Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andre Henry. And I'm your other co-host, Alicia T. Crosby. Hey. We, <laughs> we are excited to share. I mean, you already know the deal. Like we're excited every week because we get to uh-huh. introduce you to really awesome people. This week's guest is Eric McBay. And Woo-hoo. Eric <laughs> Eric is an organizer, farmer, and author of four books. He writes and speaks about effective social movements and has organized campaigns around prison justice, indigenous solidarity, pipelines, unionization, you name it, he's done it. (laughs) He lives and farms near Kingston, Ontario, on traditional Ashkenazi and Haudenosaunee territory. So... I know that I first heard about Eric from Andre, um, recommending his books, well, volume one and volume two of Full Spectrum Resistance. Yes. Andre, like, tell us, tell me, like, why these books are so meaningful to you. Um, Okay. I could say a lot about Eric McVeigh's books, and I'm going to try to be concise, but... He's very excited about the books, (laughs) just so you know, y'all. Full Spectrum Resistance is one of those books about social change that puts a lot of information in one place um, and uses a lot of stories. And so it's one of those books that could be um, on a list that says, if you don't read anything else, read this book. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because there's so, there's just so much about social movements and the histories and the stories of social movements that's in one place. And the other thing is that Eric's perspective on full on uh, resistance, it, it it challenges this binary that people have around nonviolence and uh, uses of force and radical action. I don't want to say mm-hmm. uh, violence because w- he's not talking about like armed struggle, but he does have room for armed self defense in movements for social justice and how how across the spectrum of resistance, those things actually might actually complement one another, which is mm-hmm. a unique perspective. Yeah, I mean, and that's something he does get into in this week's interview. But before we get into this awesome, awesome interview this week, we want to make sure that we talk about our Hope Notes. Again, like Hope Notes is a new segment that we're working with in season two, where we talk about the things that are hopeful that are happening in the world around us. And Andre and I are going to share our Hope Notes with you in a second, but we want to remind you that you too can share your Hope Notes and do so by linking with us in social media and using the hashtag HHP podcast. Again, that's HHP podcast. Mm. So, Dre, what's your hope note for the week? Okay, well, right now, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but at this time, we'll still be relevant. At this time, I heard that like 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests that happened this year were nonviolent. And that mm. gives me a tremendous amount of hope. Because I feel like people really, people really shit on nonviolence, you know? Mm-hmm. People be That's because like, they oh, don't that, understand it. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, that doesn't work, da 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 And exactly what you said is because they don't really understand it. Like, what they think nonviolence is, is like 
trying to hug a police officer after he punches you in the face or something. Which is not. That is a violent act. <laughs> we can have a conversation about why at another time when we aren't speaking about hopeful things. Oh, yes. Well, we could get into it our heart pill. I'm just going to, whatever my heart pill was today, I'm just moving <laughs> this conversation down to that section now. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about nonviolence. We're talking about how do we confront evil? How do we confront injustice and oppression without killing anybody? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I think that this is just a huge testimony to the power of nonviolent struggle to say it's not obsolete. It's not something of the past. It's not something that just our ancestors did. It's something that still works today. Mm -hmm. What about you? What's your hope note today? So this is going to be a little bit silly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things that I have been doing just as a way to turn my brain off. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who know me personally, you know that my brain works far too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, is I have been Netflix binging and mm-hmm. I've been watching Madam Secretary, which I finished a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and designated Survivor. Okay. And there's a lot wrong with these shows, but what they do get <laughs> right is um they've worked to like portray a world in which certain things aren't um a struggle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the episodes that I, I watched last night was about um the president, you know, confronting invasion of privacy. Um, which is actually something if you've listened to the show in the past, like you understand, like that was actually one of the things that got me involved in justice work. I was really concerned about it. But yeah. like, what does it mean when we invade one one another's privacy and are using social media for harm? Like, what does it mean instead to like, you know, use it for good and to like cultivate community? And like he did this around a um a storyline with his transgender sister-in-law because mm-hmm. her privacy was um was invaded and she was forced into the public spotlight when she didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And instead of being pulled by like the right or the left, because like those are both, you know, Republicans and Democrats in the show were trying to force him to have a, a different types of conversation. The conversation that he was willing to have was about like, what does it mean to you know, respect people and care for people and to do so in a way that honors the ways in which they desire to disclose things to you. Mm. And, you know, bringing that back to real life, I think about, you know, the fact that um, a couple of really high profile like Black folks have shared with us recently that they identify, not even that I identify is like LGBTQ, that would actually be like a mischaracterization. Mm. But they shared that they, you know, love folks and are attracted to folks who people maybe assume that they wouldn't have. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm speaking about Niecy Nash, Nash. And, about, <laughs> and, and Andrew Gilliam yeah. and, you know, what it meant for people to have respected Niecy's privacy as she and her wife, Jessica, were growing their love. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately for Andrew to not have been afforded necessarily the, the same degrees of privacy. Right. Um, right. But that all being said, like, it's it's nice to look at a world in which some of the things that I value and hold close are being upheld, even if that's not what's happening in our real world. Mm. Um, hopefully, like, you know, life will imitate art in this instance. Mm. Well, I'm happy to hear about what's making you hopeful. Mm-hmm. We yeah. need that this year. 
we need to keep talking about what makes us hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I think for my hard pill, I maybe talk about the ways in which 2020 is a shit show. Uh, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but in, in 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 working to give us hope, we are going to get into our our guest interview segment. Like this is really rich, y'all. Bust out your pens and papers. Like go click clack click clack on your keyboards. Like you, there's a lot of really rich content for you to hold on to here. Yeah. So without further ado, here is Eric McBay. Hi, Eric. Hi, Andre. <laughs> How's it going? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing really great. I'm glad that we have finally made this happen. Um, our listeners don't know, but Eric and I tried, or we had a great conversation like months ago <laughs> <laughs> about social change. And uh, Zencaster did not want to record it. And we've had quite a day trying to get this one together, but it sounds like we're stable. So I'm excited to talk to you about your work and your book. Me too. And I guess, you know, there's a reason they call it the struggle and this sort of thing is all part of it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, so Eric, I've been reading the first volume of Full Spectrum Resistance and I'm still making my way through it. I read pretty quickly, but this text is, I was just thinking about this, like it's so thorough. There's so much in there. Um, but it's so readable at the same time. And so I'm going through it slowly because there's so much that I just don't want to forget. <laughs> so um, I have some questions just about your the way that you came to write this. Like, do, do you have like a, an advanced degree in history or something like that? How did you collect all of this information? I do not know. I don't have a degree in history. I, I'm i an organizer and I've been an organizer for more than 20 years. Yeah. And so I really come to it from that perspective. And I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of mix the the practical and the historical and the theory. Um, yeah. And so I've spent a lot of time working on different kinds of campaigns using different tactics. You know, I've been I've done tree sets, um, I've done indigenous solidarity work and, and marine conservation with groups like Sea Shepherd, and I've mm-hmm. done um, union organizing with precarious workers and started community gardens and that sort of thing. And, and all of that work and working with different people and different movements has given me a broad perspective on strategies and tactics. Um, yeah. And, you know, this book also took, a, took years to write. Um, partly because I yeah. wanted to be comprehensive in, in a lot of the, the research that I was doing and historical research and interviews um, and make sure to understand what are some of kind of the general rules for success in social movements and, and resistance mm-hmm. movements and what are some of the maybe specific rules and what are actually some myths maybe about how social change happens. Because I feel like, you yeah. know, on the left, there are a lot of mythologies that that don't yeah. always serve us now. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. I wanted to try to look at things from as clear-eyed a perspective as possible. Yeah, let's dig into that some. What are some of the myths that you feel exist, like you said, on the left about social change? Well, I think one of the biggest myths is that social change happens when we persuade people in power to change their minds by acting mm-hmm. in kind of a moral 
morally respectable way. So uh, let's mm-hmm. break that down a little bit. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's this core, there's this belief that changing the opinion of people who are already in power is the way to make change by persuading those mm-hmm. in power. And historically, that's almost never happened. Um, those yeah. in power are, they, they benefit hugely from, from exploiting the working class, from destroying the planet. Um, and it's, it's extremely difficult to persuade them to do anything at all. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I, I quote William Lord, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, the, the abolitionist and publisher from yeah. 1840. And he says this really clearly. He says, quote, there is not any instance recorded in either sacred or profane history in which the oppressors or enslavers of mankind, except in individual cases, have been induced by moral suasion to surrender their despotic power and let the oppressed go free. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> Pretty clear. Yeah, and there was a, a slaveholder named James Hammond around the same time who said the same thing. And he said, if you distilled nectar from your lips and discoursed sweetest music, do you imagine you could prevail upon us to give up a thousand millions of dollars in the values of our slaves and a thousand millions of dollars more in the depreciation of our land? And I mean, that's a, that's a very <laughs> odious perspective, but it's very honest. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that 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 lesson applies in so many places that that mm-hmm. women's suffrage did not come about because, um, you know, men in Parliament and in the UK were kind of persuaded, oh, it would be good to have that perspective. It was because there were thousands of, of suffragists who went, you know, did civil disobedience right. um, and went to jail and, and, and committed arson uh, against abandoned buildings. This, it's, mm-hmm. it's really this disruption is the key in essentially all of these right. struggles, that disruption of business as usual by a powerful social movement or a powerful resistance movement. And that disruption mm-hmm. becomes so, um, so sustained that it is actually easier for those in power to to give some kind of concession or to step out of the way, and and essentially that's almost how always how profound social change happens. For those in power, you know, giving up becomes better or easier or less costly than the alternative of continued escalation. So I think that's something that's really important to understand in general. And I think the other part that I mentioned is. You know, this idea that those in power are kind of persuaded by by moral righteousness, um, uh-huh. because I think that, that's, that's another thing we see on the left, too, that people feel like, oh, if we give like a really personal, if we give a good moral example ourselves personally as individuals, then those in power will kind of see that and they'll want to emulate us. And, mm-hmm. and that sort of respectability politics has been tried you know, to end homophobia and to end racism and to end many mm-hmm. other things. And it's almost never worked yeah. because oppression is not about what individuals do. It's about systems right. of power. It's about groups of people and classes of people. And to change those systems, what we really need is collective action. Hmm. There's a myth that I come across a lot has to do with the types of tactics that we, tactics that we use. Mm-hmm. And this is partly why I, so appreciate 
like the first part of your book of Full Spectrum Resistance, where you talk about some of the more radical violence. You talk about property destruction. You talk about armed defense. And even some of the like, some of the most famous stories of social change, the way that they've been told, like, it seems like they've been some details left out. So could you talk about kind of the myth of the way that we talk about peaceful protests. I don't want to, ins- I don't want to imply that I'm saying that like we are, we have to like, you know, burn America down in order, in order for it to change. But when I hear people talk about peaceful protests, it's almost as though they're speaking of non-action at all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's important to, for us to recognize that, you know, nonviolent action can be extremely effective. <laughs> But it mm-hmm. works through disruption, like we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, that Gene Sharp was really clear about. He said that yeah. you know, nonviolent action is a means of combat that requires yes. wise strategy and tactics, and demands mm-hmm. courage and discipline of sac- and sacrifice of its practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I quote in the book another nonviolent activist named Barbara Deming, who says, "Quote the challenge to those who believe in nonviolent struggle." is to learn to be aggressive enough, which mm. I think is an important lesson, that it's not about non-action or kind of just offering a moral example. It is about disrupting the status quo, disrupting you know, the, the laws of segregation, as an example, if we want to look at the civil rights movement, that, that the nonviolent tactics that were used very effectively often in that struggle were not just about protest. They were about people going to a lunch counter or you know, a, a city bus or a library um, that was segregated and saying, we're going to break the laws of segregation. We're going to have people from different ethnic backgrounds, you know, sit down and order a sandwich or ride this bus where they're not supposed to. And that disruption of business as usual, that disruption of the law in, in a collective form is what, um, is what creates change, is what makes right. of injustice impossible to sustain. Um, and mm-hmm. in that context, I mean, this is another area where a lot of that, that history of struggle has been kind of sanitized and mythologized. Because um, yeah. on one hand, I know I live in, in Canada, and I, especially a lot of white people in Canada look at the example of the civil rights movement and see only persuasion. They see, oh, well, mm-hmm. someone like Rosa Parks. She refused to move, and all of a sudden, everyone everyone was persuaded by her courage, by her refusal to go to the back of the bus. But it was, it's never about that that one individual, right? I mean, Rosa Parks was a staffer for the NAACP. She understood social movements, and she knew right. that yeah. in taking that that action, she could kind of trigger much larger action in the community. That she knew that this was a maybe a, a trigger point for the Montgomery bus boycott, for the whole black community of Montgomery, Alabama to say, no, we're not going to ride the bus either. We're going to, we're going to act in solidarity and, and create economic disruption essentially. Um, Sure. Is to understand that, that nonviolent action works through disruption and works through collective action. Mm -hmm. I, you know, of course, another really key part of the story, especially in the South that's missing is the role of of uh, of actions that were not primarily nonviolent? I think of mm-hmm. the Deacons for Defense, which was a movement that that arose 
um, as a before the Black Panthers as an armed self-defense group, and it was founded um, mostly by by Black veterans who saw the risk that was posed by racist violence from both the police. KKK um, and organized to defend themselves and to defend other organizers. So, you know, when there was, um, say, a sit-in by the NAACP Mm -hmm. at at a local library that they were trying to desegregate, groups like the Deacons for Defense, they would go with their guns and and sit outside the library and make sure that the Mm -hmm. the KKK were not going to come and attack those people. Um, And that story Mm -hmm. is, I mean, has been left out for a few reasons. On one hand, there was, you know, kind of an agreement amongst a lot of uh, a lot of civil rights activists to maintain a little bit of theater around the way that nonviolence worked. And so that was part of the reason that it's been lost. And also, you know, people who are doing armed self-defense in the South at this point, even before the Deacons for Defense, those kind of, you know, community self-defense groups created in secret because of the dangers involved. And, and of course, the other factor at play is that a lot of people who were, um, a lot of people have wanted to take credit for the whole of the civil rights movement um, many years mm-hmm. down the road, right? And I mean, you, you now even have people, you, you have Republicans all the time saying things like, oh, Martin Luther King, <laughs> man, I would have been right there with him. Um, like, <laughs> right? And so um, a lot of the wins have kind of been um, appropriated at the same time as they've been sanitized. And these key parts of this movie have been left out. And I think it's really important to understand them because if we want to, to understand now in this context how we can un- overturn, you know, violent systems of, uh, of inequality and injustice, we need to see the whole picture of, of how that's worked in the past, of how that succeeded mm-hmm. before. And that's why I called the book Full Spectrum Resistance, right, is because there's really this whole spectrum of tactics, um, indirect and very direct, um, that is mm-hmm. usually required to create profound change. Yeah. You know, um, as you're talking, it reminds me of another section of the book where you talk about how movements are like neighborhoods or you talk about an ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, of people who are or groups that are doing different types of action, but all that are necessary mm-hmm. for for the revolution. And I wonder how, how does that work to you? You know, do you, because I when I think about racial justice in America, which is the thing that I'm really passionate about, mm-hmm. I think, oh, my gosh, like there's so many different things that need to be done. Um, none of us can really do the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, so what do, what do you think? Yeah, I think that <sighs> that in general, in our movements, one of the key things we need to do is build an understanding of why different tactics are important and why they're mm-hmm. necessary, why we actually need to have a lot of different tactics. Um, mm-hmm. and, and let me give you some examples. And, and one of which is that is, is something that you just said now is that you don't have time to do everything and none of us has time to do everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, being, a, being an organizer around this stuff, it, it takes skills and experience. It's not just something yeah. that we get up and say, Oh, I'm going to go become like, uh, you know, a super effective activist tomorrow and have 10,000 people in the street, (laughs) this sort of thing takes time. And it does take time to get good at different tactics. So it's important. It's okay for us to kind of have specialties um, and get good at stuff so that we can get lots of people working together and everyone kind of doing the kinds of action that they're good at and that they feel passionate about. 
I think that that's really critical. And I also think um, it's important to recognize the ways in which different kinds of tactics actually support each other. So there's this notion, oh, if you do anything that's that the lowest common denominator won't understand, or that seems too radical. Oh, you're going to discredit the movement, or this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, in history, that that very rarely happens. What usually happens is that there's actually a beneficial effect from groups that are using different tactics. That's called radical flanking, um, and mm-hmm. I talk about this in a bunch in the book. But basically, radical flanking is. It's kind of the social movement equivalent of good cop, bad cop. Um, <laughs> you know, like, let's use the civil rights movement since we've been talking about that. That a group early on, like the NAACP, that, that wants to end segregation, that, that idea of ending segregation seems really mm-hmm. kind of radical at the time, right? And yeah. so people will look at the NAACP and say, oh, this fringe organization, why would we listen to them? Um, And then as other groups come into the picture, like the Deacons for Defense, you know, these Mm -hmm. armed suspects groups or or stuff like the Freedom Rides, which are, you know, more confrontational forms of activism. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the NAACP with its relatively polite sit-ins and and marches, that seems really appealing to those in power by comparison. Um, And so radical Mm -hmm. flanking uses kind of more militant tactics to make um, more moderate approaches seem reasonable by comparison, seem appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so that's something that I think the left often doesn't understand very well. I think the right wing understands it extremely well. <laughs> <laughs> using this, this approach has been using, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck or Fox News to just say what right. extreme thing they can think of in order to kind of drag the political spectrum to the right to use some of these approaches to make um, to change what is considered normal or moderate. Um, and the oh, left wow. to use those same tactics, which is a real shame because, you know, the things that that are considered extreme by, say, the Democratic Party standards are actually really reasonable stuff. Like, you know, I think that the United States should have not the, the worst infant mortality rate in the developed world. I think, I think everyone should have, you know, enough food to eat every day and, and you know, yeah. a place to live where they are safe um, and, and comfortable. Um, I think that we shouldn't destroy the entire planet through climate change. But, right. you know, the left is afraid to often, you know, the kind of established party left especially is afraid to say these things bluntly. Um, because it doesn't want to seem extreme, but the left right. is not afraid, uh, or so the right wing rather is not afraid, and so they're able to drag the political spectrum over. Right. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of these diverse tactics, one of the things that that I have seen in in campaigns that I have worked on is that um, you can often get people to understand the need for more diverse tactics if they are participating in in a campaign where those traditional tactics have failed in a visible way mm, and people mm-hmm. are ready maybe to move beyond kind of petitions and letter writing because they've seen that it hasn't succeeded. Uh, that's often what we see in, in, in campaigns that win and that do this is that they've kind of gone through a little bit of the due diligence at the start and that they're often focused around a really specific place like a specific piece of a land or, a, or an institution or a neighborhood that people are trying to protect. 
Um, it's easier for people to understand the need for diverse tactics because of that kind of tangibility. But it's also a challenge, I think, on the left that people don't want to acknowledge when they've lost, especially kind of mm. you know, parties or, or NGOs. They, they want to keep it positive, but that often means like failing to acknowledge when tactics have not been working and failing to explore new ideas. Um, and, you know, that's, that's another barrier, too, is that a lot of social movements have been kind of NGO-ized, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, I, I think, grassroots movements, like a lot of grassroots movements that have been really successful in the civil rights movements or in other places. People don't care about as much like getting funding because <clears throat> they don't necessarily have reliable sources of funding. They don't have, you know, professional organizers. Um, right. paid a regular salary. What they care about is kind of achieving and showing to their community that they can get things done. Um, mm-hmm. And that visible success in the long term actually brings in more resources to the struggle, right? Because it makes more people kind of committed and makes them understand the benefits of direct action and the benefits of all of these different tactics that we've been talking about. As, as we're talking about this, I think about the folks who say, you know, I'm not an organizer and I never want to be one. I'm not an activist mm-hmm. and I don't ever want to call myself an activist, but they care mm-hmm. and want to be involved. And something that was really um, encouraging me in reading uh, Full Spectrum Resistance was you mentioned that most people are going to play a supportive role to mm-hmm. like the, the folks who are at, you know, at the front line of, of this kind of work. So what would you, what would you advise for the kind of person that I just described? Like maybe they're a single, maybe they're a single mom, they've got four kids and they're like, I'm, I'm not going to go sabotage any railroads, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I want, but I definitely want to be a part of, of the movement. Yeah, I think um, there are a bunch of ways to get involved that are not kind of high risk or that are not really demanding of time and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is really crucial is to tell people the stories of successful movements, right? To share yes. those, those stories and to essentially to build a culture of resistance. I think that's one of the most important things that we can do that doesn't require people to go out and, and you know, get arrested or, or spend, um, you know, months or years of their lives. And, and maybe I can expand on that a little bit more, that a culture yeah. of resistance, you know, it's a culture where we um, understand and celebrate different kinds of social movements. And, 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 that, and it's a culture that social movements emerge out of, right? So mm. seen in different... Um, in different, you know, countries or different communities or or different kind of cultural groups, some of them tend to produce a lot of really powerful, effective social movements, and yeah. some of them maybe don't as much. And I think we live in a time and in a society in in North America that is very individualistic, um, yeah. and that also kind of um, has a lot of amnesia about social movements. Mm-hmm. And so, to build a culture of resistance means a bunch of things. It means, it means telling people those stories so that they can understand, hey, like there are many movements that have won under seemingly impossible circumstances. And every movement has started with a small group of people who sat down and said, hey, this problem that we're facing seems impossible to fix. So what are we going to do? 
And all of those movements, you know, they figured out what they needed to do and they succeeded. So it's important to look at those stories for both inspiration and for, for practical purposes. One of the things that's been coming out of a lot of the workshops and I've done recently in different places is that a lot of the groups I've spoken to are excited to start a film series and mm. just like get together and, and watch films about movements that have won and about campaigns that have won to help to kind of spread that knowledge to give people a broader understanding of the kinds of tactics and the kinds of actions that we have available to us. So that knowledge mm -hmm. is really key. And then the, yeah. the community building part of a culture of resistance is really critical too. The fact that our society is so individualistic really hampers the growth of social movements, right? Because we have to have people around us who we can trust so that we can take action with them, whether that's risky action or not. And we've seen in, in really authoritarian uh, societies that, you know, the goal of the secret police is not really mm -hmm. to like arrest people for crimes. It's to undermine that sense of trust. It's to make people feel like their neighbors are always going to snitch on them or that they're always being watched. And so building um, really a, a community is, is a very radical thing to do. And it doesn't need to be a community that spends 90% of its time talking about revolution. It can be a community that spends 10% of its time talking about radical change and the rest of the time, you know, building trust between people and talking about what's going on um, in the neighborhood or in the community and making sure that people are fed because that's the other part of it. You know, you mentioned the idea that only a couple of, of percent of any movement are actually involved with this direct action sort of thing, the really high risk right. action. And that's true. But to have that group, they need to know people who are taking those risks need to know that they're going to get support, right? That if they have, right. they get arrested and spend a few days in jail, that someone's going to like take care of their kids and feed them or, or watch out right. for them or do the, you know, do all of these things that, that communities need to do. Um, so I think that's crucial and that building community that, that supports that kind of radical understanding and that has radical change as a goal is, is so important. And that, you know, a lot of people, you, you may not have necessarily right now the skills to go out and, you know, do recon for some kind of direct action. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot yeah. of people, you know, have the skills to talk to their neighbors and show empathy and to, you know, cook food for people who, who need it. So those are all really important things. And they're also part of the long-term success of movements because right. movements that succeed, you know, they don't usually succeed in, in a week or a month. They are, they mm -hmm. take years if we were talking about overturning really deep systems of injustice. And that's yeah. we need communities that, and of, of resistance that people want to be part of. We, we need movements that people want to be a part of and that are kind of welcoming in different ways. Um, because mm. the easiest way to destroy a movement is, is probably not to arrest everyone, but to have a culture that is um, unwelcoming and hostile so that people stop joining and start leaving. Um, and then the movement never really gets anywhere. So I think that kind of culture of resistance piece, that welcoming culture, regenerative culture, some people are, are calling it, I think that's absolutely crucial. Yeah. You know, it's, this is really touching something personal for me in the sense that 
I started really studying systemic racism mm-hmm. in a in a more intentional way when I saw a young man named Philando Castile um, die on Facebook Live after being shot by the police. And um, I made a commitment that day. You know, I, I need to invest my body in mm-hmm. uh, confronting this problem. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny because sometimes I wonder about some of the things that you said about like being an amplifier, a storyteller. And, you know, a lot of my work is what I'm doing right now is I have a few thousand people that are going to hear you speak and they're going to hear some things about social change that they never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it doesn't feel like that's enough, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think that I think that brings up the question for me about, yes, building that culture of resistance. Who participates in doing that? You know, I could imagine that artists have a role to play. I could imagine media people and, and even clergy people, you know, folks who are who are telling stories. I just wonder, you know, who who do you see kind of leading in that that other work that isn't necessarily the 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 on the ground tactics of of organizing activism? I don't know. I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, totally. It's absolutely that that you know people that you are are mentioning artists and and I think teachers also we see yes can often play this really important role. Um, I think really anyone who is involved with their community in kind of a, a face-to-face way, um, because I think that those face-to-face relationships are really important. I think we can yeah. um, mobilize a lot of people through through online outreach, but that to build that trust and to build that tangible community, you know, at some point that has to involve that those face-to-face relationships. That mm, yes, so I think all of that is really important. And for me, you know, I'm I'm a farmer, and so I mm-hmm. always look for opportunities to tie food into things, right? Because yes. we all eat food. That's one of our kind of universal, <laughs> uh, things in common. And so everything right. around food, I feel, has potential to also be about resistance and and justice. Yeah. Um, well, Eric, I am so glad that we had this conversation. I'm so glad that we finally made it happen. <laughs> and um, let's make sure that everyone knows uh, that Full Spectrum Resistance Volume 1 is out. But isn't Volume 2 out now, too? Volume 2 is out also, yes. Um, and they will be both be coming out in the French language uh, in the new year as well. Um, oh, my gosh. If you have any French readers out there. Super cool. Super cool. Well, thanks again. And I look forward to talking about the next volume soon. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds excellent. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. So, Andre, you had the opportunity to, to sit with someone Yep. whose work very directly like inspires your own like yeah. what like what are your thoughts like this is someone who I remember you were like really pumped about talking to yeah you know I I have I have feelings just thinking about this uh, conversation and what Eric's work has meant to me um, because um, I kind of stumbled into organizing you know and I've I've tried mm-hmm. to not I've even tried to uh, avoid using that word and I didn't really start t- talking about my work on the ground in mm-hmm. my area as organizing until this summer, actually, when 
I literally was like having to make spreadsheets and coordinate resources and mm-hmm. coordinate people and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, I've been doing this for a while. It's kind of it's time to call this call it this. So anyway, there are a couple of things from Eric's book that um have really stood out to me, and I was excited to talk to him. And so one is that he talks about how the left has a culture of defeat that we foster this culture of defeat. Say more about that. (laughs) And I hate identifying like on that spectrum, especially Mm -hmm. since most people think of it as a binary anyway, they're not thinking about a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, so I'll still take it as like activist culture or left leaning culture, whatever you want to say. And that culture of defeat, the thing that he he pointed out many characteristics, but the thing that stands out to me the most Mm -hmm. is infighting. That was the thing. Ooh, like God. the most, <laughs> the thing that the thing that sticks out with me the most, and I think about it every time uh, I'm on the ground, every time I'm working with people, is the infighting is a part of this culture of defeat. And one thing that he says is that fighting the power is hard, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's so hard that it's easier for us to just settle for self righteousness. Mm. <laughs> and mm. so I see these like purity codes. Like mm-hmm. I think it, I think of it as a as purity culture. So mm-hmm. there is this like political purity that people, ideological purity that people yeah. aspire to. Um, even um, a purity of praxis, right? Saying like, mm-hmm. well, if you don't live up to all of your ideals, you know, perfectly, then you're canceled. Basically, you know, like some, mm-hmm. you know, not that everyone is like that, but you get what I'm saying. Like these things. I see how these things can in their in their extreme form because mm-hmm. you know respect for accountability you know give mm-hmm. with with accountability and integrity as givens the mm-hmm. extremes of like just looking for purity and punishing one another for mm-hmm. being impure or just you know People have egos and want to be platformed. And so they're Mm -hmm. bickering with one another or, you know, all of the all of these conflicts and infighting, they can be huge distractions from the thing that we need to be doing, which is building the capacity for change. Mm -hmm. You know, no, I I definitely would agree with you. I mean, the thing that immediately comes to mind as you're talking is that, and forgive me for the alliteration of this, um, but it seems like there's a prioritization of performance over praxis. Mm. Um, mm. Yes. Like that's that's what happens in those situations because it's about like you performing in the right way. Right. And I think that, you know, I, I mean, I definitely have seen this. I've seen this in movement culture, including, you know, with those who are like deeply entrenched and have been involved in movement for a long time, as well as like those who are just showing up. Yeah. Like there are ways that we've been told that things are supposed to work. And mm-hmm. when they don't work in those ways mm-hmm. precisely, there is consequence because we haven't learned how to be flexible and amenable and like shift. Right. And I think for me, like this connects to one of the things um, that Eric was talking about in our time together and your time together. Um, but speaking about myths. Yes. Right. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. myth making that takes yeah. place within social change work. Yeah. And I think that that is a myth is that like, you know, people are going to perform like people are going to do this 
well all the time. Right. You know, that they're not going to get it wrong. Like, it's okay to get it wrong. So long as, like, you have the integrity to, like, acknowledge the ways in which you did something that was, you know, maybe harmful to people or, you know, that, you know, just didn't work. And it's okay. Like, sometimes we fail. Failure is an opportunity, I believe, to get things right and to be able to, like, interrogate, like, why you got it wrong in the first place. Yeah, and I think there's another myth underlying that, too, where a lot of us come into the movements with, you know, trauma from mainstream culture or wherever Mm -hmm. we were. And we, I think that we, we tell ourselves that we won't experience those things in the movement, you know? And we kind of pedestalize these spaces and people, sometimes leaders or whatever. And then mm-hmm. we find out that, like, people are just people, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to hold space for not, not bypassing that and not just being like, okay, well, you know, it's water under the bridge. Mm-hmm. But I think that we have, to have, we have to understand the occupational hazards of trying to work together for change. Mm-hmm. And part of and part of that is that, you know, we're going to have to actually do some community building, some conflict resolution, some, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. It's a part of community, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is definitely like reflective of just life. Right. Like yes. the same thing that you're talking about, like as it relates to movement. I mean, this is definitely true of you know what people experience in like in other spaces i think about like in religious culture right like the way that we hold up you know leaders in those spaces you know institutional like culture right like you go onto your job or you join a group it's like you know you again hold people up in a certain life a certain light rather Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yeah you hope that people would act in a way where <laughs> they're above right. reproach. But the reality is that that's not always the case. Not everybody's there for the right reasons. And even those who are still have the ability to screw up. Yeah. In the book, he talks about like how deep, how deeply the culture of resistance in the American revolution was, because you know why we drink coffee, right? In America, why coffee is our drink mm-hmm. is because American, the colonizers, (laughs) the colonists wanted so badly to break with everything British that they just said, well, FT, we're not drinking tea no more. (laughs) We drink coffee now. And to drink tea, you know, during the revolutionary time was almost like, you know, raising questions about whether or not you were a loyalist or not. Mm. So the culture got so deeply ingrained into these people that Look at it hundreds of years later, like it's just a part of American life. Yeah. And um, n- not saying that, you know, I want for us to be like, you know, white colonists in many ways. But the but the example of the resistance culture that we need to build is something that I be, that I think about a lot. It's like we need to figure out what what values actually help us to get to the world that we want to get to mm-hmm. and to and what practices get us there. Mm hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that like one of the things that popped out in this interview was like the role of disruption. Um, So one of like the first myths that Eric did away with for me, um, I'm just like, yes, tell it. Um, (laughs) He was talking about um, a myth that's upheld oftentimes is that social change happens when we persuade people in power to change their minds by Mm. acting in a morally respectable way, which is like a load of hooey, Mm -hmm. (laughs) y'all. Like people 
with power, people who are oppressing folks, it's like you're not going to show them some image of like being morally upstanding. And they're going to be like, you know what? I want that, too. Because the reality is Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be in a position of oppressing you for the most part. Sometimes it works. Majority of times it doesn't. They're okay oppressing you. They're okay exploiting you. They don't see you as being you or or other people who you are advocating Mm -hmm. alongside. They don't see your humanity as being on par with theirs. Mm. And And they know what they're doing, too. Exactly. It's not like they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, Alicia is such a nice, respectable woman. And I've been doing this to her the whole time. Cash. You're not surprised by that. They're yes. not. Like, they knew. <laughs> they knew. But so, I mean, but this is where disruption comes into play. So, like, when Andre's talking about practices and, like, in resistance and, like, in modes of it, like, one of the things I think that it's a, a really... Um, a, a really important thing for you to wa- all to walk away with today is an understanding that, you know, disruption of the status quo is what actually works in social transformation work. Right. Like something's got to be disturbed. Something's got to be off put. Like something has to be, you know, upended. Right. Like right. an inconvenience. And so a question that I have For you, Dre, and for all of you at home, we'll get into our questions a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, But what sorts of disruptions have been effective in bringing attention to the need for change in your communities? Like, what have you seen that's been, like, really effective? Well, um, so this is a good year to talk about this because Mm -hmm. we've had so much protest activity. And we've had some in my area, in Pasadena, Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a coalition of groups, Black Lives Matter, Pasadena, City Hall Sessions, Black Unity, you know, several. Mm-hmm. Um, when one of my neighbors, Anthony McLean, was shot, had, you know, there was like a whole week where there was an action like every single day on the streets, right? There was a police oversight meeting coming up mm-hmm. um, the following weekend. So... Uh, you had the NAACP, Endalon, CCOP. I know y'all don't know all these organizations. I'm just naming them so you get the idea that there's a bunch of organ- <laughs> organizations mm-hmm. on the ground, right? So, um, you know, you have all these groups that are working in their different ways, right? Some of them are focused on policy and some of them are focused on research and some of them are focused on direct action. But they're all working during that week. Black Lives Matter is blocking the streets, um, and and we were organizing people to email their city council people, but I'm sure mm-hmm. the NAACP was also, you know, like uh, gathering people to make sure that they make public comment at the police oversight mm-hmm. meeting. And mm-hmm. with all those groups doing their thing at the same time to put pressure mm-hmm. on the city council, um, mm-hmm. that police oversight proposal was changed. It was modified because before it was very toothless, right? It mm-hmm. was like, Basically, police oversight in name only, but didn't give power to the people. Um, But Black Lives Matter and those other direct action groups organized this huge caravan. I mean, it had to be 100 cars and over and hundreds of people Mm -hmm. that marched from the Red Line District of Northwest Pasadena, where Black people, it's a Black community that the city doesn't really make very much investment in, marched Mm -hmm. down from that neighborhood down to the mayor's house. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And the mayor stood on the front lawn and uh, demanded that they release the video of Anthony McLean's murder because mm-hmm. they were dragging their feet on this and demanded it and made him 
<laughs> and this is a tip for y'all who are doing this kind of work. They made him commit in front of hundreds of people that the video would be released the next day. Mm-hmm. You got to make got to make these leaders. And that's the that's the pressure, right? It's putting mm-hmm. the, the pressure on this leader and saying, all right, you made a promise. <laughs> hundreds of us witnessed it. The mm-hmm. media was there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you got to deliver. So, I mean, that that kind of disruption is something that I've seen is like people actually disrupting the flow of, you know, ordinary life in Pasadena, you know, because mm-hmm. that caravan was blocking traffic. It was, you know, making noise by people who were having their dinners in the in the in the business district or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, getting these leaders to do something that they otherwise wouldn't do without that kind of pressure. Mm hmm. One of the things that I appreciate about um, your response to this question, Dre, like using an instance that has happened in a place, like you highlight a really important thing that Eric speaks to. And that's Mm. that a whole spectrum of tactics have to be involved in our resistance work. Different people who occupy different roles, who have different commitments, like you come together, you work for social change. That's how it gets done. And like, you know, the example that you just gave, gave that there were like different organizations using different tools and tactics, yes. like literally different vehicles were involved. Like, yes. you know, a petition ain't a caravan. Right. Like it's, it's exactly. different. Exactly. And so now that was like, you didn't know I was going to talk about that, but <laughs> it was a beautiful way for me to bring up that point. I love how he he talks about this as an ecosystem. And so he mm-hmm. talks about different movement groups as different animals in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, like a rhinoceros and a flamingo, you know, are very different animals. They do different different things. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't want you wouldn't want one animal to have the traits of a rhinoceros and a flamingo together, mm-hmm. you know, but they belong in the same ecosystem. They make sense in the same ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that has been really helpful for me, too, in my work, because, again, this culture of defeat, I think, makes people just look around at each other and be like, that don't work. That don't work. You should be doing this. You know, you shouldn't be doing direct action. You should be writing petitions. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be writing petitions. You should be writing policy. You shouldn't be writing mm-hmm. policy. You should be focused on our research. But instead, if we all understood that we are an ecosystem, mm-hmm. every animal needs to do what it does. And all the animals don't have to be the same. And in fact, a stable ecosystem has different, you know, a healthy ecosystem has these different organisms that can live and live together and do their part. Mm -hmm. So I want to circle back to something that you'd actually said um, in our intro. You were actually speaking about um, the ways in which people who don't embrace necessarily nonviolent tactics are a part of movement work. Yes. And I think that that's something that we don't always highlight because of um, the sanitation of history. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, when we're speaking about, you know, nonviolent struggle, we don't always give credit to the fact that there are siblings in the movement who have different commitments than us, right. who work to keep us safe, employing right. tools that we ourselves don't necessarily right. um would it necessarily use our, like on our own? I hope that we can change the world through nonviolent struggle. And I believe in nonviolent struggle. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, when, when Mandela said that, listen, the oppressed cannot be blamed for the methods that they have to use to liberate themselves because their methods are determined, the, the, the amount of force they have to use depends 
is is set by their oppressors, you know? Mm-hmm. It depends on what their oppressors are going to respond to. Mm-hmm. And that, it makes sense to me. No, it makes sense to me too. And I think, you know, this is where it's very important for us to not just like accept history as it's been told, but go looking for histories. Yeah. Um, because there are things that are sometimes taken off the table in order for us to have limited imaginations about like what's possible and yeah. who the actors were who were involved in like working for change in the past. And I think that's especially important for us to remember as we try to figure out like what it is that we're willing to do, willing to support and willing to, I don't know, see as a part of our vision for, for nonviolent, you know, struggle and, and yeah. action in the future. We got to yeah. just really know like what the fuller histories are and you're not going right. to find that in a textbook promise you you won't no there's a reason why we're not taught about these things and there's a reason like one one thing that i always think about is like how did nelson mandela become like this icon of nonviolence? you know mm-hmm. like when you talk about nonviolent struggle mandela is always in there and yeah uh the african national congress initially did adopt gandhian nonviolence to oppose apartheid mm-hmm. and then <laughs> and then Mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela stood up and in a speech said, this ain't working anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not working for us. And Mandela's commitment to nonviolence was strictly about strategy. It was not about moral principles. Mm-hmm. So he said, this tactic is not working. This strategy is not working. So we're going to have to use uh, arms. Right. Mm-hmm. And from what I read in his autobiography, the conversation, well, first off, Mandela was arrested for like blowing up a, a blowing up something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the conversation that they were having with him in prison was denounce the armed struggle. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why he was in prison so long. Well, yeah. Well, when they were trying to get him out, they wanted for him to uh, to undermine the armed struggle against apartheid, and he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That was the conversation. So I'm like, okay, so how? How, why, why are y'all just counting him as, you know, this, this nonviolent paragon? And this is what we're talking about. This sanitation of history is that, Mm -hmm. you know, anyway, you you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's, it's convenient to leave those things out. Um, But yeah, y'all like gotta stress, like you gotta, you gotta read and talk to folks, right? Because like the only way, it, it's not just possible to to get educated by reading. So many of y'all want book lists and like books are very important, but like we have people who were there and yes. people who are students of, and who are students of, yes. of different movement cultures. I mean, so much of what I learn, I learn in conversation with people like Andre and like with other really close friends, like who are learned in things that I'm not. Um, and that promotes me to buy books that I will get to at some point when I am not in school. Um, just keeping it real. Um, but in the meantime, my understanding of, of histories and what is possible has been expanded through these conversations that I have with people that I'm in community with. I think that that, that whitewashing of history, that revisionism is definitely a hard pill. So Andre, I'm gonna pitch it to you to talk about our hard pill segment. Doesn't have to be Doesn't have to be this way Doesn't have to be No, it doesn't have to be this way 
our hard pill segment is where, you know, we're talking about some hard truth about pursuing social change. And so in the same ways that you um, share your hope notes, you can share your hard pills via, again, tagging us on social media or sharing it with us via the hashtag HHP podcast. Um, Dre, so as you think about what your hard pill is, I know you're trying to get it back. I can speak about mine. Okay, what is it? Um, My hard pill is like, honestly, like life is hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome to 2020, y'all, where life has been really difficult. Um, I mean, sometimes we don't talk about like in social change, like the thing that is most cumbersome could be our capacity and like what our minds and bodies can handle. Right. Um, And so I'll be like fully transparent. Y'all like my body has been kicking my butt. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, um, Dre knows this. And like some of you other listeners who have chimed in here and in other places know this too. It's like, I have some like chronic illness and I just get so exhausted like looking at the world and like sometimes like, you know, the things that I intake about the need for social change, like cause pain flare ups Mm. because like those things are internalized in my body. Like I'm seeing the ways that we need to be free. And like, sometimes I'm physically in pain and, and out of that, I'm kind of incapacitated. Like I can't do anything Mm. because of how bad my body will hurt um, because of the stress that it puts me under. And that's a really difficult thing to deal with. Like sometimes like I just can't, I got to say no, I just can't do um, because my body won't allow me to. And sometimes it's not just my body, it's my mind and my body. And sometimes even my spirit, they're all working in cahoots and saying like, nah, sis, go sit down. Mm. And that's a really difficult thing to to deal with. But but it's it's my reality. And I, I wonder for how many of you, that's your reality too. Yeah. It's just, just the state of the world. It's just like taking a real toll on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. My heart pill for today is that we have to take responsibility for the change mm-hmm. we want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about this because there's this thing that I notice where like liberals, especially white liberals, live like in a constant state of shock and surprise in America. Oh, yes. Right? That's like, true. Everything that happens, they're like, we're better than this. I can't believe that this is happening, you know? And I'm like, okay, y'all, I need for y'all to really pay attention (laughs) and understand that you're talking like bystanders. Mm -hmm. You're talking like you've gone to a basketball game and -hmm. you are watching society from the sidelines and like you have no agency in writing history, creating the future, right? And one thing that's making me think about this is that at the time of this recording, we just lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. I understand why people were grieved. I was grieved when I heard the mm-hmm. news. You know, it's sad. Um, but let's be honest. Most people who are grieving mm-hmm. don't know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. They don't know her as a person. No. And so, you know, you're not just grieving her as a person. You're grieving the loss of some political security, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, you looked at RGB as a dam that was Mm -hmm. holding some kind of uh, unfortunate political reality at bay. And Mm -hmm. now she's gone. 
And that's terrifying for a lot of people. And I recognize that fear and I acknowledge it and affirm it as a legitimate emotion. So what I'm hearing just makes it sound like we really don't get that we have to take responsibility for the change that we want to see in the world. The struggle Mm -hmm. is ours. It's in our hands, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you see something happen, like you lose a less conservative judge on the Supreme Court. Um, it is. And you know that you're going to get a more conservative judge on the Supreme Court. You just have to take that as though, all right, the conflict situation has has changed. It's shifted in some way. Right. But it's not time for us to sit back and say all is lost. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't have time to despair in that way. Feel your feels, you know, grieve. Mm Right? Grieve, all that be kind of sad, thing. go yes, through what you all gotta that. go through. But, but don't, just know. don't give in to that lie, like, that there is no hope. Like, there's always hope. Right, right. Because it never depended on RGB by herself, right? Mm-hmm. And let's be real. Like, let's be all the way real. Much respect to her and to her family and her legacy. But, you know, RGB is not the most progressive, you know, person that could have been on the Supreme Court, you know? Mm-hmm. So... You know, like, let's not make it about great men, great women, great individuals. Let's always remember that the ball is in our court. The responsibility is with us. Mm -hmm. We are going up this hill. And I I know some people don't like war imagery, but listen, the cops be coming out and vigilantes be coming out with guns and weapons (laughs) and bulletproof vests. So you could tell yourself you're not in a war if you want to. (laughs) But, you know, somebody's at war with us. You know, Mm -hmm. so we're going uphill in this battle. And when something changes up there, when we see like, when we see Goliath coming over the hill, Mm -hmm. like for those, for those of you who are not, you know, biblically, you know, you know, Bible stuff, Goliath was a big giant warrior one time. We got to be sensitive, right? Alicia's Mm -hmm. laughing at me. I am. (laughs) I appreciate appreciate, No, I appreciate the context. Like it's it's, because we're not making assumptions that like everybody grew up hearing the same stories. Right, exactly. So you see Goliath coming over the hill. Like you just got to say, okay, there's a giant up there now. Now how are we going to hit him? You know what I'm saying? Like, going to come for his ankles. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, but the whole, you know, the whole force can't, you know, you know, sit down now and be like, oh, man, we only, we only expected to fight people our size. You're mm-hmm. going to lose that battle. Mm-hmm. So that's the hard pill is like the responsibility is with us. We need to internalize that, mm-hmm. you know. I think that we think of activists and organizers and advocates as like our special forces, right? Mm-hmm. And that's fine if you want to think of them in that way. But if there are special forces, <laughs> logic would suggest... Regular. Regular, regular forces. <laughs> so yeah, like this is a really good um, space to like bring up our questions for the week because some of them do deal with myth-making, y'all. Um, So we're continuing on in our practice of asking you questions for reflection. And remember that you'll always be able to find the questions in our show notes for the episode. And so this week, you know, question one is, what are some myths that you've encountered in social change work? Question two, what sorts of disruptions have been effective in bringing attention to the need for change in your communities? And this week's final question 
well, it's actually a two-parter. Um, so questions. Question three. What commitments and passions do you have around social change? How do they inform the tactics that you're willing to engage or the roles that you can take on in movement work? Look, we're here reminding you that like everyone has work to do. And so hopefully the questions this week will will help you clarify um, and just continue to process through like, you know, what is it that you specifically can do in this work for racial justice and social change? Well, thanks once again for listening to our show. We always love spending this time with you and are really so glad do. that we actually have listeners that are a part of this community. Ross is going to come on and tell you how to keep in touch with us and how to find us on Patreon and all that kind of stuff. And we will be with you next time. Bye. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our incredible patrons. Thank you for being part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. We are grateful for you as a listener, and we love being able to provide conversations with these incredible guests for free without ads. If you want to be a part of supporting the work with not only the podcast, but with all Hope and Hard Pills is doing, your best option is to join the Patreon. Look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. get it.